Some of you know this about me. I've always been a fan of the true crime genre of books, TV, podcasts, whatever. I'm a sucker for the story of how the authorities caught the bad guy. And that's what I want. I want to see the bad guy get caught. I don't want any of these unsolved mysteries. Those things are creepy. I want to know, I want to know what he, who it was, and I want to see him get caught and brought to justice. Um, one wrinkle in that genre that's fairly recent, once cameras got small enough to be hidden, there started being all of these shows where you could see the bad guy either doing the bad thing or in a scenario where like he was caught and he didn't even know it. Have you seen these? Like uh, when, when cameras got small enough to be hidden in like a button or a purse or something, Dateline or 2020 would hook somebody up with a hidden camera and they would send them into a business that they knew would be dishonest so that they could film the business being dishonest. They take some lady with a little camera in her in a button and go in and with a car the producers of the show knew was perfectly fine and she'd go into the auto repair shop and what would the guy tell her oh your car i'm very sorry your car needs a new transmission or something three thousand bucks later or they would send somebody into a to a jewelry store or a pawn shop with a with a watch they knew was very expensive and these people would try to sell it and the guy would say oh man that thing's only worth about 200 bucks and they thought they were perpetrating a scheme on some unsuspecting person, but they didn't know they were the one being schemed. They didn't know the camera was rolling. There's something sort of compelling about watching that play out. Keep that in mind for a second. As we study through the book of Matthew, we've We've come to Jesus' arrest. That was in the previous paragraph from where we pick up today. Today, Jesus will be brought uh, into the residence of the high priest in Jerusalem, a man named Caiaphas. We're sometime, by our reckoning, it might be after midnight, so by our reckoning, it might be early Good Friday morning. This is the day Jesus will die. And we're going we're gonna to read and study through his first trial, a trial at the hands of his fellow Jews. This is not the, the trial that will seal Jesus' fate. The Romans will have to do that. He'll have another trial in a couple of weeks in front of the Roman governor. This is something we might call a preliminary hearing, or maybe this is like the grand jury where he's going to be officially indicted. The Jews are going to try to collect some charges and deliver them with Jesus and convince Pilate to execute Jesus like, like they want. But what these Jews don't know is the camera's rolling. They think they are the ones pulling one over on Jesus. They think he is the victim and they are the judge. Jesus is going to tell them today, the judge is in the other chair. It's what we're going to read about today and study through this, this sham of a trial 
of Jesus before the Jews. Let's read our passage. Oops. Try that again. There we go. Let's read our passage. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Those who had seized or arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. We talked about Peter previously. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later, later on, two came forward and said, this man, Jesus, stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, or I put you under oath by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think or what is your verdict? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. Another slapped him. They said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? About the first half of that passage we just read shows us what a sham of a trial this was. This stuff doesn't all stick out to us because we're not first century Jews. But I think if we were and we read through that, we would, some things would stick out to us as like, man, that's, that's not right. Lots of things would stick out to us. Like, this isn't legal. We already know from early in Matthew, from early in the Gospels, we know that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They've been, they've been plotting this since very early in his ministry. And they've got everything planned up. And now that he's been arrested, their goal is not to figure out if he's guilty or innocent. Their goal is to get him killed. And so they're going to, they've, they've got this all planned out. They know how to collect the right evidence all in one night. Get him tried and convicted and shipped off to Pilate in a way that Pilate will execute him. The Romans didn't allow Jews, or any of their conquered people mostly, to execute criminals. They had to do that. So what this is, is they just have to figure out what charges to collect and sort of pin to Jesus so that when they hand him over, they can say to Pilate, Pilate, this man is such a danger to the Romans that you had, you had better execute him. Now, the Jews are supposed to operate, the Sanhedrin, the high council, they're supposed to operate under their own law, their own rabbinical law. And here's some things that I read through that were illegal according to the 
to Jewish rabbinical law. This isn't in the Bible, but this is in their, um, their legal uh, writings and traditions. First, uh, witnesses were not allowed to be called at night. So that was illegal. Trials weren't supposed to happen at night. Trials weren't supposed to happen during a religious festival. And this one did. The Sanhedrin itself wasn't supposed to convene at night. According to their rabbinical law tradition, um, no capital case. You know what I mean by a capital case? Capital case is one where if the person's convicted, they can face capital punishment. They can be executed. In a capital case, the accused was supposed to have legal help. We would call a lawyer. He didn't have one. Obviously, they searched for witnesses who would say things they knew might not be true. That's obviously not right. This, oh, trials were also supposed to be public, and this one was private. The whole thing was just, just a sham. Again, it was not meant to find out what was true or right or wrong. It was just to get Jesus killed. Matthew gives us the purpose of this meeting in verse 59 where he says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? So that they might put him to death. That's the goal. And so this is a fishing expedition. They did um, hold to this part of their rules, Testimony was only valid if there were two or three witnesses that could testify to it. So in this fishing expedition, they just want to bring in all the liars they can find who would say something, they don't care if it's true or false about Jesus, just something that will stick. They just have to find two liars that agree. And they're having some trouble doing that, apparently. Until finally, Matthew tells us, this is also in verse 60, second part of verse 60, finally two came forward and declared this. This man, Jesus said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And that, they get two guys to agree on that lie. And it is a lie. I'll explain why in a minute. But that's, that's the charge. That's charge one, count one that they're going to send to Pilate. And here's, here's why this is the one that sticks. They're basically, we would say they're going to charge Jesus with terroristic threats. The temple of God in Jerusalem was, a, was, an, archi, excuse me, was, a, was an architectural wonder, marvel. It was built over decades under Roman authority by a guy named Herod the Great, who's dead by this time. It's a very impressive structure. It's very important in the region. And these guys are going to go to Pilate and say, this guy has threatened to destroy, to to commit a terroristic uh, act of destruction on the temple. And people would go nuts, so you'd better execute this guy. That's the charge. Now, it's false because Jesus never threatened to do such a thing. He said some things that were kind of close For example, he said privately to his disciples during this week, it's been a while since we studied it, but Jesus indicated that the temple would be destroyed, but he didn't threaten to be the one who would do it. Publicly, back in John chapter 2, 
Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Uh, Two verses later, John tells us Jesus was talking about his body and he was predicting his own resurrection. But even if that weren't true, even if Jesus really was talking about the temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem, he still didn't threaten to destroy it. He threatened to fix it, right? If we're going to diagram this sentence like an English class, what's the subject that would fit right here of this sentence, destroy this temple? You, the understood you. If someone destroys this temple, I can fix it in three days. Now we know he wasn't talking about the temple, but be that as it may, he never threatened to be the one who would do this. But that's going to be, that's going to be the charge. Count one. This guy's threatened to commit a terrorist atrocity on a very important uh, and very public building. That's why the high priest, when he gets those two liars to, to agree, and there's the charge or the accusation, the high priest gives Jesus a, a chance to, to answer the charge against him. And he doesn't. So he comes to Jesus and he says, this is verse 62, have you no answer? What do you have to say for yourself? This is a very serious charge. And verse 63 begins this way, but Jesus was silent. Most of us have heard these stories before. Ever wonder why Jesus didn't just refute at least the lies against him? Why doesn't he just say, hey, uh, I never said that. Remember, in Gethsemane, Jesus came to the understanding obedience for him was death on the cross. Jesus is not going to try to be acquitted. He doesn't want to be acquitted. He will not be defending himself because he doesn't want to be acquitted. He wants to suffer and die. So he won't be defending himself just like in the garden he, didn't, he won't defend himself legally, just like in the garden, he didn't defend himself physically. Remember, they came to arrest Jesus, and what's Peter do? Peter pulls out his sword and starts swinging around and slashing ears off and stuff like that, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 cowboy. Holster that smoke wagon, right? Put that thing away before you cut yourself. If I wanted to defend myself, I wouldn't need a fisherman with a pocket knife. I could have 72,000 angels here in a second. Jesus, his jaw is set toward obedience, which means the cross. That's why he doesn't defend himself. That was predicted 700 and some years before, by the way. And the prophet Isaiah said this about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. This is what obedience for the Messiah as he fulfilled his purpose would look like. So that's charge one. You got charge one? This guy's going to be a terrorist. But that's almost the minor, the lesser charge. Because the high priest is about to get down to the main, the main idea, the main task at hand. 
in verse 63 later, he puts Jesus under oath. Your Bible, like the New American that we read a minute ago, might use the word adjure. That's just a courtroom word. He put Jesus under oath in the same way that we might raise our right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. He puts him under oath by the living God, and then here is the question he asks, or the charge he tells him to answer. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the big question. And before I say anything else about that, I want to ask you this. Can the high priest of Israel tell what Jesus and who Jesus has claimed to be during his life and ministry? Yes. That's why he says. They, they know that Jesus claimed to be the Christ or the Messiah and the Son of God. That's what, they just want him to admit it in court. They know that's who Jesus claimed to be. How do they know? He called himself Lord of the Sabbath. Who, who was the Lord of the Sabbath in the Old Testament? Who instituted Sabbath? That's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus said, yes, me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus said, I and the Father are what? Are one. We're equal. He claimed equality with God. That's why they tried to stone him one time. He used the divine name for himself. The I am. That's me. They know he claimed to be the Christ. He was constantly talking about the kingdom being at hand. One time in a synagogue, he unrolled a scroll from Isaiah that predicted the Messiah. And he read it and he rolled it up and said, that has just been fulfilled right here in front of you. And he sat back down. He rode in just the beginning of the week that we're at here what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. He rode into town on the colt, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, while people threw palm branches in front of him in their coats and screamed, Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. The prophet Zechariah said, that's how Messiah is going to arrive in Jerusalem one day. It's like Jesus was holding up a giant sign that said, I am the Christ, the Messiah. It couldn't have been clearer. Don't let anyone knock on your door and try to tell you Jesus didn't claim to be God. They'll be around. They're wrong. He claimed it, and his enemies knew that's what he claimed. They just want him to admit it in court. Because that's going to be the major charge. In fact, it's going to be the one put on a sign above his head on the cross. Because the Old Testament scriptures, the only Bible these men had, predicted a Messiah, which is a king, a Christ. That's the Greek word. It's a king. And the king will judge all of the nations of the world and will reestablish a Jewish kingdom. By the time this story happens, the Jews haven't had a king for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the Old Testament promises there's one coming the son of David, a descendant of David. We're going to have a king again. They want Jesus under oath to claim to be that king. Because then they can go to Pilate and say, Pilate, you know the emperor does not allow 
other kings. So you'd better execute this guy because that's who he claims to be. That's the charge. Under oath, tell us, are you the Christ and the Son of God? And Jesus answers in a way that leaves no room for doubt that that's exactly who he is, who he claims to be. Mark just cuts to the chase, gives us a summary. Mark says, Jesus said, I am. Matthew tells us that Jesus answered with room for a little ambiguity that I want to explain. All right, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says to him, you have said it yourself. You say so. You know how I would answer that or you wouldn't have asked me the question. Some think Jesus is wanting them to think he's saying yes, but he's really not. That's not true. And I'll tell you why in a second. I think Jesus is just saying, you know how I would answer that question or you wouldn't have asked. Just me being Christ doesn't mean what you think it means. I'm no threat to the Romans. Not on this trip. I didn't come to judge the nations of the world. I came to save the world. But what Jesus says next lets us know he absolutely claims to be the Christ and the Son of God. Here's what he says. He, he quotes or at least alludes to two Old Testament verses. He says, you have said it yourself. Yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. But it doesn't mean what you guys, I want to make sure you guys know what it means. I tell you from now on or henceforth, someday he might even be saying, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, that's from Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, that's from Daniel 7. We may not understand at first glance what Jesus is saying there, but we're not experts in the Old Testament law. And his audience that day was. They understood what Jesus was saying. And I want you to understand what Jesus was saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, I'm the Messiah. But don't get confused about what's going to happen here. You guys are going to kill me. I'm okay with that. I want that. And when I hang on the cross, you are going to think you are seeing evidence that I was wrong about being Christ and Son of God. And so what Jesus does is he predicts right here his resurrection, his ascension, and his return to earth. Here's how he does it. Yeah, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Christ. And you're going to kill me, but you will see me again. That's resurrection. One place you will see me is sitting at the right hand of the power. I'm going to ascend to my father's right hand. By the way, the power right here, the Jews are very careful in what they do with God's name. Right? One of the commandments, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. They're very serious about that. So they don't, they, don't even, they don't like to use the proper name Yahweh. They don't even like to say words like God about God. If you ever get on a, the website of a Messianic Jewish church, they don't even write out the word God. It'll say capital G, and then it'll have a dash, and then it'll have the D. 
because they, they don't want to use God's name. Jesus doesn't want to offend anybody here. <laughs> so he calls God by one of his acceptable nicknames, the power. Comes from Psalm 110. You know what Psalm 110 says at the beginning? It says of the Messiah, God, um, the Almighty, says to the Messiah, sit down at my right hand, the right hand of the power, until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put your enemies under your feet. Do you catch what Jesus is saying there? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? You bet I am. And you might kill me. Next time you see me, I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of the power. And guess who my enemies are? That's you guys. And guess where you're going to go? Under my feet. Then he says, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven. This is where Jesus got his favorite nickname for himself, Son of Man. Son of Man was just an old way of saying human. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel sees a vision from God. And what he sees in that vision, he sees a vision of the end of the age when God says, that's a wrap on this earth and brings it all crashing down. And what he sees, is, he says, I saw one who looked like a son of man. He looked human, but this human-looking man waltzed right up to Almighty God that Daniel was terrified of. And Almighty God just gave this human-looking being ruling authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Daniel sees that one who looks like a son of man return on the clouds to be the king and judge over all the earth. You see what Jesus is saying under oath right here? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? You better believe it, and you might kill me. But when I return, you won't be judging me. I will be judging you. I am the Son of Man who will return on the clouds, and you're going to see it. quite an answer. That's why it gets the response it does. Verse 68 says, then the high priest tore his clothes. I'll pause for one second to read to you from Leviticus 21.10 says that the high priest must never tear his garments. One more illegal thing the high priest did. The high priest tears his garments and he accuses Jesus of blasphemy, which is just a serious misuse or misrepresentation of God. Again, they know Jesus is claiming to be the Christ and God. That's why they charge him with blasphemy. And the high priest says, you guys have all heard his blasphemy. And then he asks this question, what is your verdict? What do you guys think? What do you guys say? And basically in unison, they say he is guilty and he deserves death. 
They think he deserves death because he's claimed to be God. They know Pilate won't execute him for that, so that's not the charges they take to Pilate. But then something horrifically interesting happens. Verse 67, 68 say, Then they spat in Jesus' face, they punched him with their fists, they slapped him with their hands. Mark tells us they blindfolded him at this time and they mocked his so-called prophetic ability. In the confusion, they asked him, which one of us hit you that time? Christ. And that's the story. That's Jesus' first trial. And as we end our time, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about that story, from that story. First one is this. What do you think made those guys so violently angry toward Jesus in that room? That night. See, I don't believe they met that night planning on spitting on Jesus and taking turns punching him in the face. This is the elders of Israel. This is a bunch of old college professor type men beating up an innocent man. What set them off so much that they literally lost control of themselves? I can promise you the high priest never dreamed he would be tearing his garments like he was never supposed to do. He lost his mind. What would make a bunch of intelligent, grown men that are supposed to have the most self-control in the country so angry that they start spitting on another human being and taking turns punching him in the face. Because I think I know. Here's my best guess. And it's not all that unusual. It's pretty common, actually. There are few things that are more offensive and more anger-inducing And telling someone who does not accept that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God, one day, you're going to stand before Jesus. And based on the decision you have come to about Jesus, he is either going to allow you to go into eternal life, or he himself is going to cast you into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Are these the last guys that got angry about that idea? They get offended about that idea. He just told them to their faces, I am going to do this to you. And they know that's what he's saying. If you don't believe that's offensive, Thanksgiving's about six weeks away. If you have family members that don't go all in on this Jesus stuff, or after you pass the mashed potatoes, ask your unbelieving cousin or uncle, Hey, what do you think about the idea that people that don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God that died on a cross for their sins, every one of them is going to burn in hell forever and ever. What do you think about that? The pleasant conversation is over. Somebody's going to be offended. That's what happens. It, you know, it's offensive. It's hard to think about.
brings me just to the cusp of the last question I want to ask you. But before I do, you remember the beginning of this sermon? What was that, like two, three hours ago now? When I was talking about hidden camera exposés and people not, where you're seeing a video of somebody that doesn't know they're the one that's really on trial. You see how the Sanhedrin, that was them. They didn't know the camera was rolling. They didn't know this was being recorded. They didn't know this was going to be the testimony against them at their judgment. Well, guess what? They're not the last people who didn't realize their life was being recorded. The high priest, Caiaphas, asked this question about Jesus. What is your verdict? What do you guys say about Jesus? That was his question. And listen, I think they were thinking along the right lines as far as this goes. I really think there's only two logical answers to what is your verdict about Jesus. Either he is everything he said he was, and his main claim we saw in today's passage was, I am the Christ, the Messiah, the King of all kings, who is going to return to earth and judge everyone. And I am God in the flesh. That's who he claimed to be. Either that is true, or what these guys conclude about Jesus is true. That he's a blasphemer, or a crazy person, or a deceiver, and a liar. Now here in our modern age, where nobody likes to be offended or offend anyone else, we try to thread the needle. We try to do something in the middle between those two things. Where we want to believe Jesus is just a good teacher. He's just a good example. He teaches us to love our neighbors and care for the poor. And then I don't go in for all that cross stuff, resurrection. He's not, certainly he's not the only way to heaven. Right? That's ridiculous. And I think I can prove that to you logically. Let's pretend, this might be a stretch, but let's pretend that you're okay with coming to church here and listening to me preach because you think I'm an okay teacher. You think I'm a good teacher. I know that's a stretch, but just for the sake of argument. And, and even in a further stretch, let's pretend that you think I'm a good example for other people. And maybe you've told, let's, let's say some of you have told your friends and your coworkers, you should come to our church. You know, the big bald guy we have, like he's a good teacher. It's a good example. Let's say that you have said that to other people. But now let's say, over the next few weeks, I start teaching things like this. You know I'm actually the Son of God. In fact, you can call me Lord of the Sabbath if you want. I'm actually the narrow door. You are not going to go to heaven unless you believe in Matt Maxwell. No one gets to heaven except through me, I, Matt Maxwell, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. What if I started teaching stuff like that? Would you tell your friends he's a good, that I'm a good teacher and a good example? No, you would tell them I'm a crazy person and you would be right. You might be right anyway. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make is if we just try to make Jesus thread that needle, he's a good person and a good teacher, um, and, but it really is not the only way. 
you have to ignore his main point. That he is the Christ and the Son of God and he is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And you are going to be one of those two things when he comes. That's why this is the important question. What is your verdict? And you have got to settle this out of court. You've got to settle this out of court. And here's what I mean. You can't wait until you are in front of the judge because it's too late to change your plea. Do you know you, by the time you stand in front of Jesus, you have already entered your plea? Because if you haven't thrown yourself at the mercy of his court before you get there, the gospel is, I plead guilty. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner who deserves eternal punishment. And I throw myself on the mercy of the court. I believe what Jesus did for me at the cross he did to save me from my guilt. If I don't do that with Jesus, I stand before God having said, not guilty. I didn't need a savior. Let me tell you all the good things I've done. Let me tell you all the sins I haven't sinned. Let me tell you the religious stuff I did to make up for the bad things I did. Not guilty, your honor. And it's too late to change your plea once court is in session. This one must be settled out of court. And the best news is we've got the greatest plea bargain that's ever been made. Because the judge doesn't say, I'll let I'll just, you know, we'll, we'll uh, plea this down to a misdemeanor. It's not like that. He said, I will take your punishment. And you can have my reward. What's your verdict? What do you say about Jesus? Is he just a good guy and a good teacher and maybe the way that you think you're going to try? Or is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? Is he the narrow gate, the bread of life, and on and on and on and on? Don't wait. You don't know when court starts. We just know one day it will be in session. And our plea will have already been entered. Bow your heads and pray with me. First, before I pray, uh, if, if you have never told God what your verdict is about Jesus and you would like to, to tell God right now that you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he, you want him to be your savior, I just invite you in the quietness of your heart to just tell God, I, I am a sinner, I am guilty, I need a savior, and it is Jesus. And he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Father God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the reminder that we need to come to uh, an understanding of our, our verdict about who Jesus is. Thank you that you made it clear in your word. God, thank you that 
you didn't just let us go and not punish our sin. You, you, you sent one, Jesus, to absorb the punishment we deserved. And I pray for, for everyone here, for our children, for our relatives, that you would continue to work on our hearts and draw us to yourself, to the verdict that saves. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who died to save me from my sins. And may we take the gospel to that message to those who need to hear. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.